morning again. My name is Jeff, and I am one of the pastors here, and it's a joy for me to be able to say that and a joy for me to be able to be a pastor here. I hope you're doing well and had a good week. Uh, GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And to that end, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, Matthew, Mark. This is, uh, we continue here in our series this morning. We are in Mark chapter 8, and our text this morning will be verse 11 through verse 21. Mark chapter 8, 11 through 21. As you're turning there, just maybe a quick reminder as we are fast approaching Thanksgiving, just a little over a week, in my little elders video this last week, uh, I, I threw out the question, what are you thankful for? Some of you have already responded, and I would invite you to do that. You can text me, you can email me. As you think about Thanksgiving, what is it that you're actually thankful for? Uh, I can't guarantee that all your responses will be in an upcoming elders video, but it might be. You just never know. Uh, but I would encourage you, even uh, if it's not, go ahead and uh, text me, email me. What is it that you're thankful for? It'll be uh, a good uh, work for your soul. If you're able to, please stand as I read Mark chapter 8 starting at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we have already this morning, we have sung your word, we have prayed your word, we have enjoyed some fellowship as we've greeted each other around your word, and now we turn our attention to the word that is preached. So Heavenly Father, I ask that you would open up our ears, that we would hear all that you have to say to us, all that you want to show us from your word, teach us, transform us, convict us, Lord, in the areas of our lives where we absolutely need and we welcome your holy conviction, all to the point that we would know Christ and treasure Christ and worship Christ more fully and more deeply. Be pleased to give us grace to do this, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Some of you may be old enough to remember the Saturday morning cartoon, Mr. Magoo. You don't have to raise your hand, but if you were a child in probably the 60s, 70s, maybe even early 80s, you know what I'm talking about. Mr. Magoo was quite the character. He was a short, wealthy retiree who got himself into all kinds of very amusing situations because he was extremely nearsighted. He could really only see just inches in front of his face, and so he was basically blind, or he basically lived with blinders on to anything and everyone that was outside of him. So Mr. Magoo bumbled and stumbled his way through life, yet it it always just seemed to work out for him. He would think that he's leaving his house to 
get the mail out of his mailbox, but he was actually walking into four lanes of traffic. But not to worry, he was picked up safely by a bird and set in his backyard. Or he'd be on a ship and he would walk it on the deck and he would fall over into the ocean, but he would fall safely onto a surfboard and just surf the rest of the day away. Clearly, cartoons are not real life, if you wondered. But the real problem for Mr. Magoo was, was actually not that he was extremely nearsighted. The, the real problem for Mr. Magoo was his stubborn refusal to admit that he was nearsighted. He refused to believe that he could not see what he should be seeing. And so Mr. Magoo just kept being on, and Mr. Magoo, stumbling and bumbling his way through life, never really seeing what was right in front of his face, never seeing what he was supposed to see. Now, the truth is, brothers and sisters, spiritually, we can be a little, or perhaps we can be a whole lot like Mr. Magoo. We tend to go through life stumbling and bumbling and fumbling our way, not actually seeing what we should be seeing. Most importantly, if we're not seeing what we need to see about Jesus, about his mission, about who he is, about his ministry, if we get that wrong, if we're unclear about him, well, it is any surprise that we really don't see clearly the people around us and our relationships and our circumstances. And so we can go through life seeing only what we want to see, basically blind to what's going on around us. And not only can't we see, but here's the real problem. The real problem is that we can't see that we can't see. The real danger is our stubborn refusal to admit that Spiritually, we can be so very nearsighted that we, we kind of function like Mr. Magoo and we go through life just as he did, stumbling and bumbling and fumbling our way, not seeing what we actually need to see. Now, our text here in Mark 8 is actually a warning for us. It actually warns us, and we need to heed this warning, that there are two ways to live like a spiritual Mr. Magoo. There are two ways to actually miss Jesus, to, to be blind to him, to not see what we ought to be seeing. And I'll give you those two ways up front. Here's the first way. A hard-hearted blindness. This was the problem of the Pharisees. We'll look at here in just a minute, verses 11 through 13. We can miss Jesus through a hard-hearted blindness. Here's the second way, a dull-hearted deafness. A dull-hearted deafness, that was really the problem for these disciples of Jesus, and we'll look at that in verses 14 through 21. But our text gives us two ways that we can actually miss Jesus. We can live like a spiritual Mr. or Mrs. Magoo, hard-hearted blindness and dull-hearted deafness, both of them will cause you and me to stumble and bumble our way through life. And even if Jesus is actually right in front of your face, or even if he's presented to you frequently, regularly, well, you might miss him altogether. Now, last week, Dave showed us the unorthodox compassion of Jesus. We're going to need to rely on that. Off the charts, supernatural compassion of Jesus for people like us who can sometimes be like Mr. Magoo. Now we pick up the action here in Mark chapter 8. Jesus has just fed 4,000 people. He's gotten to a boat. He's sailed now across to a place called Dalmanutha. It's the west side of the sea. It's in Capernaum. And here's how Mark records this confrontation, and it is indeed that with the Pharisees. This is verses, uh, verse 11. Let me read this. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got in the boat again and went to the other side. So here you have the Pharisees who don't see what they ought to be seeing, what they really need to see, 
Why can't they see this? Well, it's a hard-hearted blindness. Notice the language that Mark uses here in verse 11. This is how he describes the interaction with Jesus. The Pharisees came. The Pharisees came to argue. They came to argue and to test Jesus. So they did not see Jesus sailing across the lake and look at him and say, wow, that, what a great opportunity. This is great. Well, I have so many questions. This will be a great opportunity to seek some spiritual clarity. That's not what, what's going on at all. This is, in fact, a verbal war. They came at Jesus. Incidentally, that is the same word that's used for militaries when they, uh, the rank and file go out for battle. So, so in our sense here, more recently, it would be like saying, Russia came at Ukraine. Well, they didn't come in peace, did they? Of course not. They came for war. So here the Pharisees came to Jesus ready for battle, ready for war. They demand a sign from him to test him. Now in Mark's gospel, and we've seen this over the course of our study here, and we'll continue to see this in the weeks to come, demanding or seeking a sign, a sign from God, a sign from Jesus, a sign from heaven is a bad thing. It is not a good thing. But in scripture, signs are not always a bad thing. There are many places, in fact, where God uses signs for his good and holy and wise purposes. I think of a passage like Exodus chapter 4. You may recall there that Moses goes before Pharaoh and God gave him a sign. Uh, His staff turned into a snake. And we read Exodus 4 verse 5. This is so, this sign in fact, was so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. That's a good sign. We would agree. If you read the Gospel of John, John kind of presents his material through seven specific signs that point us to the majesty and to the glory of Christ. And so the the very first sign in John's Gospel is Jesus turning water into wine. And then eventually he cleanses the temple. And then there's several miraculous healings. And then really culminating that seventh sign in raising Lazarus from the dead. These are all authenticating signs in Scripture to show us, to help us see that Jesus is who he said he was, that that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. Christmas is not too far away, but a month, which is incredible, isn't it? But the Christmas story that we celebrate, well, that begins with a sign as well, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a what? A sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a big sign that you just don't want to miss. Now here in Mark, when the Pharisees are saying, hey, we want a sign from heaven, what they're demanding is not another miracle. The Pharisees, they had witnessed all kinds of miracles of Jesus. That's not what they're wanting and demanding from him. They wanted a sign from heaven They wanted Jesus to prove himself to them. They want Jesus to give some sort of proof to authenticate the fact that he is who he thinks he is. So in other words, the Pharisees here are playing a game. And they want to invite Jesus into a game that they know he can't win. So they want to trick Jesus. They're not earnestly seeking Jesus. They're arguing with him. Their intent is to destroy him, to oppose him. So again, this is, this is not seeing Jesus and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm struggling to believe. I'm having a hard time trying to put the pieces together. Jesus, can you, can you just explain a few more things so that, that maybe I can understand? There is, brothers and sisters, you, you need to know this. There, there is a time and a place in the Christian life for that, that honest seeking and asking and struggling and continuing to go before Jesus and wrestling through. That's not what's going on here. Pharisees are settled in their opposition. They're settled in their unbelief to Jesus. They know it all. So this is not a test of struggling belief. This is hard-hearted unbelief. Pharisees are just looking for more reasons to continue in their rejection of Jesus. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus is the smartest person that ever lived. 
So good luck, Pharisees, trying to get a fast one by Jesus. It's just not going to happen. And that's why in verse 12, notice the response of Jesus. Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. In case you're wondering if Jesus experienced human emotions when he was on this earth as a man, well, well of course he did. Here's an example right here. He, he has very, very deep emotions. And in this case, that sighing deeply is, is part anguish, it's part frustration, and it's a whole lot of dismay. It's a deep hearted really like that's that's where you guys are at that's where you've landed i mean what more can jesus do he's given the pharisees all kinds of miracles all kinds of evidence so that they could know him and trust him and believe in him and worship him yet they still stubbornly refused they remained stubbornly opposed to Jesus, to his mission, to his ministry, to his teachings. You want to make Jesus sigh at you this week? Come to him with ulterior motives. Go ahead and give Jesus your agenda for what you think is best about life and your life. You want to make Jesus roll his eyes at you this week? Come to him under the guise of asking questions, of inquiry, but, but you know yourself well enough, it's, it's just hard-hearted unbelief. You've already decided in your heart what you think about him. You want to make Jesus this week? Come to him with all your criteria for who you think he should be and who you want him to be and who you think you need him to be. Come to him with your list of demands and then reject him when he doesn't do what you think he ought to do. Well, Jesus, clearly, he doesn't, he doesn't share my views on politics, so there's no way that I'm going to worship him. He's not going to be my God anymore. Jesus doesn't seem to share my view on gender or on immigration or on race relations or you can name the topic. So, well, he doesn't fit in to my world, so he can't be my God. I mean, come to Jesus with an attitude that says, I'm, I'm going to try and fit you in somewhere here, Lord, but I'm not, not quite sure exactly how that's going to work. Come to Jesus for all kinds of selfish reasons. Come to him with your agenda. Come to him saying, Lord, here's what I need from you. And if you don't do this, well, we're going to have a problem. I need a, I need a wife. I need better friends. I need a better job. I need relational harmony. Come to him with your criteria and your agenda. That's how you get Jesus to sigh at you. And Jesus will have none of that. I mean, that's why he tells the Pharisees here in verse 12, you're not going to get a sign from me. I mean, essentially what he's saying to the Pharisees here is, look, you want a sign? Read the scriptures. Listen to my words. See, see what I've already done. You, you've had all these signs, and yet you still refuse to believe. And so Jesus leaves them. He gets in the boat, and he goes to the other side. You might think, well, does Jesus not have compassion? I thought that's what we learned last week. Where's this supernatural and orthodox compassion? Isn't Jesus supposed to hang in there with everybody, with, with, with people who are playing a game with him that he can't win? I mean, why does Jesus leave? Remember Mr. Magoo, who stubbornly refused to admit that he could not see what he actually should be seeing, who actually couldn't see what he could not see? Well, that's, what, that's who Jesus is dealing with here. He's dealing with these Pharisees who had already chosen in their hearts to reject Jesus. They had already plotted his demise and his destruction. They, they willfully chose to reject Jesus, even though there was a mountain of evidence staring at them in the face about who he really was. And so Jesus simply says, I'm just not going to play your game. 
I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to bow down, Pharisees, to your agenda, to your criteria. Not now, not ever. You will not dictate my mission. And so they continue to stumble and bumble their way through life, missing Jesus. It was right in front of their faces. That's a really hard way to live. It's an impossible way to live. So if you willfully refuse to see what is actually right in front of you, or who is right in front of you, this Jesus that we love and that we treasure and that we, we worship, if you willfully refuse to see him Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I, I can't offer you much hope at all uh, for your hard-hearted spiritual blindness. It's one thing not to see. It's another thing to deny the fact that you cannot see and just continue on with life as if there's no big deal. There is a big difference. Again, hear me. There's a big difference between struggling with doubts and asking and and an honest seeking and you've got some fears and sometimes the Christian life and following Jesus can feel a little bit like like you're on a bit of a tightrope, can't it? And the wind blows and you kind of go this side and then you kind of back this side and you kind of, the knees kind of shake a little bit. That's one thing. But that is completely different than a settled unbelief and opposition that masquerades as a search for the truth. And so we need to heed this warning. Where is your heart hardened? Where might it be hardened? Where, where might you just have even that first Right now, thin layer of ice, crustiness towards the Lord and towards the things of God. Are you seeing this morning what you really need to see? Now, God in his kind grace for people like us, sometimes the Mr. and Mrs. Magoos, he actually offers a solution to our hard-hearted spiritual blindness. He doesn't just leave us there. It's called repentance. Repentance. And I trust the Spirit of God is at work as He is every Sunday when we gather. I trust that He is moving around this place and I trust that He's moving in your heart as He is in mine. If that's the case, He's not revealing that sort of spiritual hardness to condemn you or to criticize you or to tell you to shape up or ship out. I mean, I looked this last week in the Bible. That's just not there. But yeah, we oftentimes believe that, don't we? No, Jesus actually has such great compassion, off-the-charts compassion for hard-hearted, spiritual, blind people such as we are that he would go to the cross. He would take our sins upon himself and he would give us new life. I mean, if Jesus didn't love hard-hearted, spiritually blind people, none of us would be saved at all. So come to Jesus, but you have to come to him on his terms. Come to him in repentance and in faith. Come to him not with your agenda and your criteria and your list of demands, but come to him in humility. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 2, and it's a question here. Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's what motivates repentance. It's not guilt. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to that place of repentance. That's actually becoming one of my more favorite verses in Scripture. Maybe it's because I sin a lot, and I need that. It's the mercy, it's the steadfast love, it's the grace that was won on the cross that motivates us, that allows us, that leads us to that place of repentance where we can go before the Lord and say, Lord, my heart is hard. I don't even know the ways that it's hard. But I know it's hard. Would you soften my heart by your sweet, kind grace? Can you see this morning what you actually need to see in Jesus 
That's the first way we're like Mr. Magoo and we can miss Jesus. It's through a hard-hearted blindness. Here's the second way we miss Jesus, and that's through a dull-hearted deafness. Dull-hearted deafness. That's really the second interaction here, verses 14 through 21. So far in Mark's gospel here, among the many things that are beginning to crystallize for us, the things that are becoming clear from Mark chapter 1, here we are now, really in the middle of the book, Mark chapter 8, it is this. The disciples of Jesus are for the most part spiritually dull, kind of spiritually ignorant. I mean, they're not getting it, at least not yet, and at least not completely. And the very ones who were the closest to Jesus who were eyewitnesses to all of his many miracles, who walked and talked with Jesus, and who were, had a front row seat to the ministry and mission of Jesus, who, who followed him and listened to him teach. Wow, they still got a lot to learn, don't they? They still got a long way to go. And I hope that's an encouragement for you. Every Christian in this room should be encouraged by that because we have a long way to go. We still have a lot to learn. Now, right, right after this battle with the Pharisees, Jesus gets in a boat with his disciples. I don't think any of us would blame Jesus if he sort of said, hey, guys, can you not talk to me right now? Kind of been through a, a lot here, kind of just was at war, it'd be okay. Maybe, maybe hold your questions for a little bit. A little silence would be good. But that doesn't happen. And of all the things that the disciples are actually talking and discussing, I mean, on this canoe ride, they have one thing in mind and only one thing only bread. And more specifically, they forgot to bring bread, so they have only one loaf. So again, you, here's the scene. You have 12 presumably hungry guys plus Jesus. You got 13 guys in a little canoe, and they have one loaf of bread to share. The next time you're rummaging through your fridge, which may be in about a half an hour or an hour, and you look in there and you think, wow, what am I going to eat here? It could be much worse. It could be way worse. You could actually be in, in the boat here with Jesus. The disciples are only concerned here about bread. They want it. They need it. They don't have enough of it. With a little creative imagination, I think we you can kind of wonder how this scene goes down. Pete, you, you didn't think to, to grab some of that extra bread? We all saw you walk by. What did you think was in all those baskets? Hey, Andrew. Come here. Keep coming, Andrew. We gave you one job. And you can't even do that? And on and on it went. I mean, I think it's absolutely amazing, given the context here, that the one thing that the disciples clearly did not have to worry about, like forever and ever and ever, was bread. Because Jesus had just fed, let's ballpark it here, 25,000 people. So of all the worries and the concerns that the disciples had and they make their list, we're afraid of this, we're worried about this, we've got issues here, I don't know how this is going to work out. Like bread didn't need to be on that list at all. Because Jesus had just proved, well, I, I am the divine bread maker. So if bread is what you need, like Jesus is the guy that can make that happen. But they're not getting this, are they? I mean, the Pharisees, they're stumbling and bumbling their way through life blindly. They don't get this. But, but the disciples here are not getting this. They're fighting over something as very earthly and mundane as bread. The very thing that they just saw Jesus provide for 25,000 plus people. So, so this scene here, brothers and sisters, this is, this is not a, a high water mark for the disciples. I mean, this is one of those incidents where you kind of look back in life and you think, wow, I did not see that. I, I kind of wish I would have handled that differently. Probably need a do-over. Now, Jesus knows this. He, he knows he's got 12 Mr. Magoos in the canoe with him. And so he gives his disciples an object lesson. And the object lesson is not, hey, guys, I'm about to get out of the canoe, walk on water, I'm going to leave you. Good luck. No, here's the object lesson. I, I imagine Jesus maybe 
Asked for that one loaf of bread, he held it up and he said this, verse 15. He cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, can you? I mean, this is absolutely rich. Jesus is about to teach them about missing the point, and his disciples are way out ahead of him. They've already gone ahead and missed the point completely. I mean, Jesus is about to teach them about seeing what they actually need to see, and they don't see it at all. Yeah, Jesus, we heard you mention something about leaven, but we need some bread. Can, can you do that for us? Can, any chance you can get us some bread? I mean, they missed the lesson about the leaven altogether. Now, what's the warning here that they failed to heed? What, is, what does Jesus mean here by beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Well, think about, think about the yeast or the leaven that you would use for baking bread. Now, in those days, when you baked bread, you would you'd bake with, with yeast so that the dough would rise. So far, so good. And you would keep some of that yeast uh, for another batch, uh, for, for, for plenty of batches. So, you know, a little goes a long way. You don't need a whole lot. The problem was, oftentimes, that yeast would be contaminated. And when it was contaminated, well, it just spread into every batch of bread. So literally, there was, there was no batch that was unaffected. You had some really bad bread. Now, in, in Matthew's gospel, here's what's interesting. In this uh, parallel account, Matthew calls the, the leaven of the Pharisees their teaching. And in Luke's gospel, he calls it the, the leaven of their hypocrisy, but here in Mark, Mark just leaves it open-ended. So I think we can safely assume it's both of that. The leaven of the Pharisees is their hypocrisy, and it's their teaching. And when you add Herod here into the mix, the leaven of Herod, well, Herod was a wicked guy, a whole pattern of life that was opposed to Jesus. The other interesting thing here is that the Pharisees and Herod were not tight. They were actually bitter enemies. But the one thing that Herod and the Pharisees had in common was their hatred of Jesus. Both of them were jealous of Jesus. Both of them were opposed to Jesus. So what's Jesus saying here? Here's the warning. Jesus is saying to these disciples, watch out, be aware. Be aware of this attitude of hardened unbelief that can slowly, subtly creep in. And you're not even going to notice it at first. Beware of this attitude of hardened unbelief that eventually demands a sign, but you don't actually have eyes to see it. And so what Jesus is saying here is both the Pharisees and Herod have a spiritual condition, hardened unbelief, that, w that could spread to them if they are not careful. One commentator said this, unbelief is like leaven. It's small, but influential. It's apparently insignificant, but all-pervasive in its influence. So Jesus has this object lesson. He's got the bread. He's speaking, obviously, of spiritual matters, deeply important matters of the heart with the disciples, but yet his disciples are still stuck on what? We want bread. Can you get us bread? And so again, we see here that the warning is don't, well, don't be like a spiritual Mr. Magoo. Don't, don't miss what's right in front of your face. Whenever we read an interaction like this in the Gospels, I think it's really easy for us to sort of have that knee-jerk reaction that says, well, I wouldn't do that. I mean, if I were on the boat, I wouldn't pull a Mr. Magoo. I wouldn't be so concerned about bread or meeting my needs. Are we really so much different than these disciples, do you think? I mean, have any, any of you ever been just so distracted, maybe with the mountain of immediate daily needs that just seem to, you know, you wake up to that? Anybody ever been so distracted that you actually kind of miss what God is doing? Because it's hard to see that. Anybody ever been so focused on maybe meeting some of those immediate needs or the needs of others that actually you, it's really hard for you to see what God is up to and you really don't engage your heart with God at all? I mean, we often miss what God is doing simply because we maybe are too busy or too distracted or too lonely or too exhausted or too weary or sometimes 
the only thing that we really are thinking about is lunch. So I think we have a whole lot more in common here with these dull-hearted disciples than perhaps we want to admit. Notice how Jesus responds to these guys. He doesn't leave them, does he? He doesn't, doesn't leave them like he did with the Pharisees. So Jesus obviously acknowledges there's a difference between where the Pharisees are at and where his disciples are at, and we'll see that in the weeks to come. But you know what Jesus does here? He pastors them. He pastors his disciples. He engages with them. And he, the way that he does it is through a series of heart-penetrating questions. I mean, Jesus knows his disciples are not getting it. But he also knows they're not without hope because he's in the midst of pastoring them. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus is pastoring you, you always, always, always have hope. Jesus is counseling you and speaking to you and asking you questions. Maybe even if Jesus in his kindness and love for you is rebuking you, well, you're being pastored by the perfect pastor. He always knows what is best for you. He's always working to do you good. You can trust him. Now, most of us don't do all that well with one or two questions, particularly from Jesus. But here, he's got, by my count, nine questions in very short order. I mean, the sense we get here is that uh, Jesus, complete control of the conversation, other than just the last two questions, he's not exactly looking for feedback here. He's trying to make a point. And these questions are not meant to condemn his disciples, but they're actually meant to teach them, to help them see what they couldn't see, to help them see what they needed to be seeing. So we begin in verse 17 here. Really, it's the most obvious question. This is probably the place that you and I would start with. Uh, guys, why are you still talking about bread? Like, we got to move on from that. Okay? Uh, don't you get it? Uh, no, Jesus, we're, we're not quite cluing in. Is your heart that hard, Jesus says? Y yeah, it is. Do you have eyes, but you're not seeing? Again, yes. And you have ears, but you're, you're not hearing? You're actually deaf? Yeah, I guess, I, I, guess, I guess you're right, Jesus. Verse 18, you don't remember? No. Remember what, Jesus when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, do you remember how many baskets full of bread you collected? Anybody remember? Any of you guys remember? Who took the meeting minutes? It's recorded somewhere. It's somewhere between 4 and 15. 12. We're landing on 12. Good. Well, how about a few hours ago when, when I broke the seven loaves and at the 4,000? Do you remember then how many baskets full of bread were left? Yeah, we got that. that. That just happened. It was seven. But yet you still don't understand. You still don't get it, do you? No. So the disciples missed the point. And the point that Jesus was making with all of these really heart-penetrating questions is actually pretty clear. You guys are anxious. You're worried. In fact, you're even arguing over one loaf of bread when the one who is with you in the boat fed 25,000 people with 12 loaves, and by the way, there's 19 full baskets left over. Jesus is saying to his disciples, can you not trust me? You know who I am. I am the Christ. I can do all things yet you still don't see. You still don't trust me. I remember on one family trip, this is, I think I was maybe seven or eight years old, we were leaving southern Ontario and driving to North Carolina, and the route took us through Charleston, West Virginia, and evidently we had some problems there. We got lost trying to get through Charleston, West Virginia. I think my dad must have missed the exit and 
as I recall, if you miss that exit, well, then you, you just can't hop back on the freeway. You took it all the way around the city, and you, you got to get back on the road. And, and we missed it a couple times in a row. And so literally, we were going in circles. And I remember thinking as a, I don't know, eight or nine-year-old, huh, I guess, I, guess, I guess we're lost. And I remember, remember my mom saying that we were lost. But you know what I don't remember ever thinking? I don't ever remember thinking, you know what? I should probably help my dad. He probably needs my help. Maybe I should get a map out, tell him where to go. He'd probably appreciate that. Here's what I think you need to do, Dad. I just remember thinking, you know, okay, we're lost right now, but my dad's going to figure it out with some help from my mom. Maybe a lot of help. <laughs> but I don't need to get stressed. I don't need to be worried. I mean, we're, we're lost right now, but we're not going to be lost for much longer. And we weren't. Childlike trust. And I know every one of us here has worries and needs and concerns, a whole list. Maybe it's pages long this morning. And you may be unsure or even worried or angry about the recent elections, the direction of the country. You, you may find yourself solidly single or solidly in middle age or solidly nearing retirement and wondering, what does life look like? I don't know. I've got so many questions or perhaps... There's a doctor's appointment that you got some really, really bad news. I don't know how Jesus is going to meet you. I don't know exactly the means he's going to use. I don't know how the people that he's going to bring in there. I don't know exactly how and when he's going to do that. But I do know this morning that he wants you to know that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's in the boat with you. He's in the boat with you. So you can trust him. And he actually doesn't even need your help to figure out what he should do with you and the direction and the decisions. You can trust him because he knows exactly what he's doing with you. The disciples got all sorts of signs and yet they still didn't get it. They didn't see what they should have been seeing, they were spiritually dull, deaf, oftentimes as we are. And so it raises the obvious question, well, they didn't get it, and they are literally in the boat with Jesus, what hope, for it, what hope is there for people like us? We often struggle to see what we need to see. Well, I want to leave you with some bit of encouragement this morning. And I want to encourage you to play a game. It's called Remember When, the biblical edition. And you can play this with, you can play it at lunch. You can do it on the way home, parents with your kids. You can do it around the supper table or sometime this week. Play a biblical edition of Remember When. Jesus says in verse 18, do you not remember? Remember what? What should we as his disciples remember? We remember today the Lord's faithfulness in the past so that we can actually look forward to a bright and glorious future. We remember today the good, the, the kindness of God, how he's met us in the past. And whether that was earlier this morning, a week ago, 10 years ago. Some of you can remember the Lord, how he met you 40 or 50 years ago. We remember today what God has done in the past. Why? So that... Actually, we're not fearing or worrying or fretting about the future. That we can trust him for that. So play remember when. I mean, Christians are people who, who do this all the time. Remember when God answered that very specific prayer. Remember when he moved on, on your life. And remember when he provided and you didn't know where that provision was going to come from. Remember when he forgave you and you know you didn't deserve it. I mean, there's actually a whole book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. It's the second giving of the law. That's what it means. It's, it's really designed for this. 
I mean, it recounts God's faithfulness to his people. So over and over again in Deuteronomy, you just read these phrases. Remember how the Lord your God delivered you. Remember how he provided for you. Remember how he led you out of Egypt. Remember how he provided a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. I mean, why did God's people need to remember again? Because they forgot often. So just think about that in your own life. Think about the times when the Lord has really met you. Perhaps in a time of trouble, a time of need, a time of frustration, a time when you were spiritually deaf. But the Lord in his kindness broke through and he met you. He provided, he worked on your behalf. I mean, we ought to be able to fill thousands of pages of books with that sort of thing, wouldn't we? And think about the times in where he's met people that you have prayed for. You know, that simple prayer that says, you know, Lord, my, my friend is struggling. He's super discouraged. I don't know how to help him. But Lord, would you just bring some encouragement to him? And he does. Or you pray for a, a friend, a, a sister who's, who's struggling. She's... She's got in-laws that are driving her nuts. And so she reaches out to you and, and you, you say, I'll pray for you. And you pray. And then you get a text a little while later and says, you know, yeah, it was kind of awkward. Like, we're not going to be vacationing together, but it was okay. God answers that. Remember when and remember how God has been faithful. That's one of the great joys I think we have as a local church is we get to remember together. So we get to encourage one another with how God has moved and worked in the past, and especially if maybe you're in a season of life where it's really hard to see how God is moving and working, and you're praying, but it doesn't seem like he's answering. Well, then you are a great possibility. You open yourself up to hear from others then and to be encouraged how the Lord is still moving and working, and you can still trust him. We remember together, we do that on Sunday mornings, we do that in our home groups and in our discipleship groups. Christians are people who remember together. We do that as we celebrate communion every week. Why do we do that? Because we need to never forget the gospel. We remember together all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus and taking our sins upon himself to free us, to set us free, to give us new life. The, the cross is where is, is the sign for us that God is for us and he's not against us. So we remember together today the Lord's faithfulness and goodness and kindness to us in the past so that we can fully engage, we can be prepared for all that the Lord has for us tomorrow. Are you seeing what you need to see this morning? Do you understand? That's actually an open-ended question from Jesus, isn't it? What that means is I can't answer that for you. I can't answer that for my kids. I can't answer that just as you can. You have to answer that yourself. And so if you're here and you're looking for more excuses not to believe, willingly or willfully turning your back on what you know to be true about Jesus, who he has revealed himself here, I say this in love, but I can't give you much hope for your hard-hearted blindness. But if you can actually relate to these disciples here in the boat, all these Mr. Magoos, you can say, you know, yeah, I, I need do-overs. I didn't get that the first time through. I'm, sometimes I really am spiritually dull. Then there actually is a great deal of hope. You may be this morning distracted by all kinds of immediate needs. You may find yourself this week falling flat on your face. You are still as I am fighting sins and wrestling through and you have all kinds of questions. But even if you have just the smallest insight spiritually to the gospel, that is evidence that God is at work in your life and he is restoring your spiritual eyesight so that you actually don't, you don't have to live like Mr. Magoo. You can turn to Jesus and come to him in faith. Not with your agenda, not with your criteria, not asking him to meet your demands, but you come to him on his terms. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, every one of us here is in need of seeing what we need to see, hearing what we need to hear. And it's not what we determine or we think we need to see or hear, but what, what is true, what is right, what you have revealed. So I pray, Lord, you'd help us. Every one of us needs your grace, your compassion to be honest before you, honest about where we're at, honest as much as we can be about perhaps even this week how we probably live with a good deal of blinders on and deafness. Lord, we, we really don't want to make you sigh at us. We want to know how we can really worship you and treasure you more than we did this last week. So give us your grace to do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the good news is that Jesus has done for us what we could not do ourselves. He's taken all of our sins upon him, nailed them to the cross. God the Father in that divine transaction has poured out all the judgment and wrath that we deserve. We deserve. He's poured that out on Christ. And Jesus willingly, voluntarily embraced, joyfully embraced that on the cross. So when you put your faith in Christ, it means then that you're united to him. And that means then that all the blessings and the benefits of his redemptive work, and there are innumerable blessings and benefits, means that all of those are now yours by faith. So when we gather for communion, especially this morning, we have a vivid, tangible reminder here that, that Jesus loves slow learners, that he loves people who need do-overs. He loves people that have a hard time trusting him. He loves people that he knows, and maybe we're starting to figure out that we have a long way to go. Now, if that doesn't describe you, I'd love to talk with you more about how you can know this Jesus, but please refrain from receiving communion. This really is a family meal for all those who have turned from their sins and trusted in Christ. In just a minute, we'll, I'll invite you forward here. We have both wine and grape juice, and... Uh, We'll have the aisles go forward first, and once they're done, then the center section. You, we've got two tables here, and you can make your way through there. Return to your seat. You can eat and drink then. Let me pray, and we'll continue. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessing of our salvation, for the blessing of being in a right relationship with you. Even though, Lord, you saw us in our helpless and hopeless need, we were dead in our sins. You who are rich in mercy have made us alive in Christ Jesus. So Lord, we don't want to ever lose sight of our need for you. And we never want to lose sight of your great grace to meet us. I pray, Lord, that every person who receives communion this morning would do so with joy. Because we belong to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.